Hello and welcome to the Inerrant Word Podcast. Today I talk with Dr. Bill Urey. Dr. Urey is the National Ambassador of Holiness for the Salvation Army. He is a world-renowned scholar on Wesleyan holiness and systematic theology. Bill completed his MPhil and PhD in Theological and Religious Studies at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey in 1991. Prior to that, Dr. Urey earned his MDiv in 1983 at Asbury Theological Seminary. He was professor of systematic and historical theology at Wesley Biblical Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi in, from 1989 to 2012, and he pastored the Elizabeth City, North Carolina EMC from 2012 to 2017. Today, Dr. Yuri and I discuss the doctrine of inerrancy from a Wesleyan-Arminian perspective. You may be wondering what a Wesleyan Arminian is. Traditionally, a Wesleyan Arminian is an evangelical Christian who follows in the stream of thought from two figures in history, John Wesley and James Arminius. These evangelical Christians are typically found in denominations such as the Global Methodist Church, the Salvation Army, Free Will Baptists, and others. Now you may be wondering what an evangelical is. That is a complicated question and could take several episodes to answer. Simply put, an evangelical Christian is some a Christian who proclaims to be born again and has a high view of scripture. With all of that in mind, let's tune into the, today's conversation. Well, Dr. Yuri, thank you for coming on the Inerrant Word podcast. Thanks, Clay, for inviting me. I love the name of your podcast. It's very distinctive, very unique, and I'm, I'm really glad that... Uh... I hope I can I can add a little bit to what you already have talked about, but it's wonderful to to finally see your face and to be be together. Well, thank you, brother. Um, I wanted to start with just a little bit of a biography for you. Um, many people may may not know who you are, so maybe just give a yeah. short uh, biography. Um, sure. what you do, where you serve, uh, at church. Um, yeah, stuff like that. Thank you. Yeah, I um, missionary kid grew up in Taiwan and uh, wasn't a Christian until I was eighteen. Came to Christ at Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, um, and then went to Israel for my first year of seminary. And that's where I really began to be challenged with some of this issue about the, the authority of the word. Uh, met some archaeologists, some philosophers there that it really shook my world, but it was good for me. And so the rest of seminary and the rest of my then seminary teaching career, which was 23 years at Wesley Biblical Seminary, um, was focused on what is the nature of truth? How do you come to know truth? Is the is the word true? And how do you apply it to your life? Um, so our, our discussion is very important to me. Uh, my wife and I served in, in a church after leaving seminary for five years. And then the Salvation Army called us and asked us to become what they call the ambassadors for holiness. So we are doing that now. We've done that for six years together. It's been a marvelous new facet of ministry we're just loving the army and loving what they uh what they stand for but we're also finding that even in that denomination there is a a, a real interesting and i'm not sure the source of it all a real undercut on the authority of the word uh, inerrancy may not be the word everybody uses but it's 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 a bifurcation of realities which we're going to talk about but uh so this this never leaves this never leaves me and since we're ambassador of holiness one of our main focuses is, is the Bible true in what it claims for us to be. So that uh, that's that's a little of my background. Yeah. Well, thank you for that background. Um, it's great uh, to hear uh, how you're doing ministry right now and uh, how you're serving the Lord. So thank you. 
Um, okay. Could you first talk about where you first learned to trust the Bible? Man, that's a great question, man. I, I I have to say that it must have come, had to have come from my my mom and dad. They live the truth. They preach the word of truth. I never heard one equivocation ever from either of them in all of their teaching and preaching. Uh, and interestingly, I wasn't a Christian for most of that time, but but uh, I never, ever did not trust the truth of the word. I must have not been a non-reflective pagan or something, but I, I always thought, yeah, this is true. Jesus is the son of God. He died for us, rose again. I never questioned those things. Now, did I apply to my life? No. Um, so that would be, I, get, I think, the first place I learned it. But again, like I mentioned a few moments ago, it was in Israel when I was like 22, 23. That's when I really began to ask myself, do I truly trust the Bible as the, the, the revealed truth of God? And I had to because there were those around me who were saying things about, you know, it can be, it can contain the word and, or it's the intention of the author and, and those kinds of things. And I'd never heard that language before. So I really was thrown for a loop. So my parents' background and first training at Asbury College was great. But it was that that critical moment for me where I had to say, Lord, you need to help me now to know that I can trust this uh, written word for the rest of my life and everything I'm doing. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's uh, it, The Bible has certainly had an indelible mark on your life, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> indelible. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, now, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Yeah. Well... <laughs> Thanks for jumping right into it, Clay. <laughs> this is the key. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I feel like I'm talking too much about myself. Uh, I graduated from college. So just before I went to Israel, this statement came out. It was 1978. And I did not know anything about the statement. I mean, I I was so brand new to Christianity, to the to scholarship, uh, you know, just, it was all happening around me, but I didn't know, I didn't understand any of the debates, what the historical background, the names, all that stuff. So it was interesting for me when I returned from Israel to Asbury Seminary for the last three plus years of, of my degree there, that this was a, it was a hotbed issue. And actually, you had, you had, even in seminary, groups of people who one, who were with the ICBI people, you know, were kind of nerdy people like me, and uh, people thought we were Neanderthals and stupid, and then there were those who were cool and more neo-orthodox and more up-to-date. And, and uh, it's interesting, that, that bifurcation in the church has continued all of my Christian life, 50-plus years now. Um, uh as an inerrantist, it's interesting. I already know who is not going to invite me to be a part of their books or their lectureships just because they know clearly who I am. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that the, the ICBI came out at a time where I had to choose, I was choosing where to, where to come down on inerrancy. And so I found it still to this day, the best statement. Now, is it perfect? No. But I, I mean, the, the, the beginning phrases about the, the, uh, the original autographs, when all things are known, meaning the Lord will give to us as he chooses support and proofs for this. But nonetheless, we're committed to this inerrant word, properly interpreted, um, and knowing all types of scripture and the kinds of scripture from history to, to Proverbs. With that in mind, the Lord, by his spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
has inspired the authors. And thus, I can trust the words to be true. Um, and all the stuff about autographs, of course, is included right there in the first paragraph. So I, I really appreciated the work. I'm sure those who are biblical scholars have gone in to you know, look at every comma in that statement. And I'm sure there's some places where they need to shore it up. But in my reading, it's still the best modern statement and as necessary. Uh, if anybody's ever read the whole thing, and I've read the whole thing many, many times, uh, it's just an excellent piece of how to how to deal with all these various views that keep coming up and how a person can say, no, I don't have to buy into that new idea, which is not really new. It's 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 been addressed since the earliest days of the church. These are not new issues. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I've... I've yeah, I, as a Wesleyan, I want to say I, I'm sure there's some reformed aspects to it that I may not fully agree to, but 95% of it, I would say I, I fully am in agreement with, maybe more. Uh, it's it's a tremendous piece of work. Yeah. Now you just called yourself a Wesleyan, which for some of our listeners, we may not know what a Wesleyan oh, is. Or maybe yeah. And maybe you <laughs> yeah. uh, talk about what being a Wesleyan Arminian is. And, and yeah, how... thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I, I hope I can describe that quickly and, and succinctly. Yeah, I come from a tradition that is birthed out of uh, the ministry and the revival that came from the heart and life of John Wesley. But the way I view Wesley is that he was, of course, building upon the shoulders of the Reformation. So there's never a rejection of Reformed thought. It's a critical analysis of Reformed thinking, but it's it's a... He, Wesley always viewed himself as a Reformed Anglican to the, to the end of his life. He never viewed himself as a Methodist, uh, or a Wesleyan, that would be very arrogant. But we, and there are millions of us now, come out of that, what I would call a merging together of the best themes of the Reformation. Um, so justification by faith, names we all know, Luther, Calvin, Knox, those folks. But then came the secondary question, how can a person be sanctified? Justification's not enough to deal with the issue of a human heart's needs. How can a person be cleansed from inward sin? And Wesley gave some very clear, reformed, quote unquote, uh, responses to that. So it, it's a it's a huge uh, world pers in, in the world of perspective in, in the world churches. Many churches uh, come out of this background. But I want to say we don't view ourselves as I don't know the last word or we've got everything correct. It's simply an expression like all of us find try to find in terms of serving Jesus. He's the reason why I'm here, not Wesley. But I have found a home there, which I think is is a holistic theological home that I think is, pertains to what we're talking about here in, in inerrancy uh, distinctly. Yeah. Now, on the topic of John Wesley and inerrancy, what was his um, views of inerrancy? Now, we know that inerrancy is not articulated that way back in his time. It was more infallible was the word term that was used. Um, but exactly. it essentially meant the same thing. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. That's a really great place to start, Clay. Um yeah, the language we use is forced by other things that he was not facing. Um, that that tells me that our argument, really, if we if we think about it, uh, I mean, I'm not going to date this dis debate by my age, but the ICB, the 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 Chicago statement came out in 1978. So this is a pretty recent argument, and even though the early church would have said, I think to the ICBI, you're close to what we believe. I think that, I think there's, for me, that's verifiable in reading many, many years in, in church historic, church theologians and biblical scholars. There is in Wesley's day, 
the beginning, 1700s, the beginning of higher criticism. And he knew about it. I've done a very careful reading of both of his Old Testament notes and New Testament notes. And you'll find in his footnotes often a reference to things that are being questioned. And, and, and he's aware of the questions. He's aware that the text is not perfect and there's some disagreement. Now, it was a brand new thing to him. So he didn't have the background that you and I have now. We can open up any commentary and read in a footnote the entire history of the debate on one verse. He didn't have that kind of background. So I'm intrigued that even with that coming, he didn't tilt toward, oh, I think I'll critique everything. He knew where that was going. So he was scholarly in his assessment of the text that he had, texts he had. In fact, his his uh, his father, when he went to seminary, when John went to seminary at Oxford, his dad said, "Why don't you just put together a polyglot, put together all the best texts in the original languages next to each other, so we can c- compare the eight best texts." And he did while he was in seminary. <laughs> so the guy was very astute in both Hebrew and Greek. Uh, I think someone told me he he knew the the New Testament in Greek by heart. So this is not some fly-by-night scholar. This guy really, really was intensely into the word, aware of scholarly questions, but he never tilted that way. So he was known as a man, he called himself a man of one book, meaning the Bible. Everything I believe, everything I am, the holiness I preach comes out of this one book, and I, I, I give myself entirely to it. He said some strong statements, like if there's one word that's in error, then the whole thing's in error. Now that, you know... I think some would quibble a little bit about that, but I love his heart and I want to be very close to that because I found that the the equivocations on truth tend to take us away from a vibrant, vital Christianity. And uh, he saw that immediately. He saw scholarship critiquing the word puts you over the word and thus you're not submitting to the authority of the word. And that's a, that's a typical way out of, of living life the way you want it. And he said, no, well, I'm not going to do that. Whatever the word says, I'm going to believe and live submissively to as best I can, because I believe that it is, it's come from the Lord and not from human, human production. That a, that's a start in any way, Clay. <laughs> no, it's a good, that's a good way to start. Um, yeah. I think uh, you mentioned a little bit ago about how Wesley, you want to be close to how he viewed the Bible. And um, yeah. I want to just ask, well, what are some of your, who are some of your influences of who oh. influenced you about wow. yeah yeah well it's interesting i have to start with my parents again but um and i can't think of them there were a whole slew of, of basically un not not they were not forgettable but in terms of listing names names you wouldn't know in college they're just from all different sources from sociology to history even my teacher in in um um ge- geography they were all inerrantists. So every, the way they approach the word influences your life. They're, they weren't raising ridiculous questions about ridiculous things. Now, they're willing to look at anything that was a vibrant issue. Nobody was dumb or ejecting scholarship, but they, they, they lived and spoke in such a way where everything was viewed as from the word was true. And so that permeates a person's mind. Uh, when it came to actual scholarship, uh, the ICBI invited all kinds of, of people, but very few Wesleyans went, which indicated already to me something that was wrong with the Wesleyan tradition, even in the late 70s, sort of an embarrassment about inerrancy, which I think uh, I've proven it in a couple things I've written about the Wesley Theological Society. But the people that 
most directly scholastically affected me were Dennis Kinlaw. Um, he gave me a worldview that spoke about a God who could reveal himself through words. His students, two men, John Oswalt in Old Testament and Alan Coppage in Systematic Theology, formed me both as teachers, mentors, and friends in the years that succeeded. I talked about those two groups at seminary. They were on one side, <laughs> very clearly on one side. And so when you got stuck with your teacher, you get that bifurcation occurred, <laughs> which is so sad to me. But anyway, that's the way it, it, it works in most contexts. Um, and then when I went to, uh, to Wesley in, in Mississippi to teach for those uh, 20 plus years, there were some great men of God who'd started the seminary who'd written articles, not books, but but articles on inerrancy in the earliest uh, years of the Wesley Theological Sem uh, uh, Society. Uh, uh, Eldon Furman, uh, uh, oh my goodness, a, a whole slew of guys that you would know if you know anything about er er you know, early 20th century Wesleyan thought. Um, so that's probably enough for now. Oh, and let me say, the, the, the people that produced the ICBI, the reformed guys, they all formed me too. I mean, uh, Norm Geisler, uh, Donald Carson, D.A. Carson, um, uh, a lot of those really uh, what I call magisterial theologians and scholars, they helped me in, uh, in responding to a lot of, of modernism that was coming out in the late 70s. Uh, but so I, I, I'm, a, I'm a blessed person to have all that background pouring into my life. Yeah. Well, it does sound like the Lord has blessed you uh, significantly in the last few years or last uh, yeah, year, 50 years. years of your life. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> now, uh, could you also, you mentioned Dennis Kinlaw and uh, Alan Copperidge. Uh, they were both yeah. signers of the ICBI from what I remember. Uh, someone may need to fact check. Is that me. right? Great. I didn't know that Dennis Kinlaw signed it. That's wonderful to know that. I think he did. I may need to fact check that, but um... I think Al Al did, and I know that John was there. But but I, there just were so. And I look over the list several times. There were just so few Wesleyans. I was very saddened by that. I felt like we we lost an opportunity, and that goes back to I'm sure we're going to get to it. That 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 reservation, which I've never fully understood. What's the reserve on inerrancy? What is the what's the problem? And when they list the problems, I'm going, but well, wait a minute, nobody's saying what you're what you're talking about. Like, for instance, this 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 rigid literalism, this reformed impress on the scripture. I'm saying it's not a reformed impress. It's what the Bible says about itself. Mm -hmm. This is the truth. And and you believe it because your entire your eternal your eternal salvation rests on these words. And they say, well, that's true, but the other stuff's not true. I said, well, well, draw the line for me. Where's the line between truth and untruth? And nobody ever does that. They, they, they make questions. They'll never say, well, that's untrue. And therefore, we, we find truth nonetheless in the meaning of it. They just, they won't go that far. So for me, it's a sort of a non-starter. It's like, you want to sound like you're critical, but in reality, you're not really living what you're, what you're talking about. And if you do live it, you have a anemic Christian life, and you're you're not offering a full salvation to people, which I found consistently true. There just is no power in a view of the script that's not totally authoritative. It it if there's if it's there, it's 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 subjective and it and it dribbles away. That's why I'm still a Wesleyan. I think the Wesleyan tradition 
was saying, let's build upon the Reformation and offer people all of the word in all of their lives. And the Lord can do this. He can make you like himself. Everybody who's loved the word has always believed that. But then you've got to come down and say, okay, now where does it actually occur? How does it happen? And justification is a great beginning point, but just the beginning. And that's why holiness and sanctification need to be so carefully exegeted in all of Scripture. As from my perspective, the major reason for the Scripture, God wants us to be, be like him. And he's made a way for that. So that's why I believe a Wesleyan should sign a document on inerrancy. And, and I'm so glad that you have some names of people that did. I wish there were more. Um, uh, I, I've lived in this infallibility versus inerrancy world so long. It just it gets to be sort of wearying because I know all the arguments. They're so well-worn and, and it's the same thing. And I'm just saying, OK, what's the end of it? What's the result of what you're saying? You're not going to be able to lead anybody to Christ without there being real questions about what they're doing. And you'll, you lose the power of talking about a sanctified life as well. It's like, well, if, if I can't trust the Bible, then how can I trust what Jesus says about what he wants to do in my life? Um, so I'm sure there are people much smarter than me that have you know textual notes that I need to look at. Okay, I'm willing to look at any of them. But by and large, my life, and it's not long, but my life has shown that anytime you dig into the scripture with these so-called problems, if you give it a few years, you find something comes out to answer that problem, to fix the problem. And maybe the Lord is saying, trust me, I'll let you have these things as I want you to have them, but I want you to trust me more than a piece of paper. So keep trusting me as the one who's the authority in my word. I'm revealing myself to you in the word. It doesn't contain my word. This is my word. And um, so that that's where I am. And I'm sure many would say, well, Bill, that's ridiculous. You've not thought this through philosophically. But I think I have for many, many years. And for me, the only word that's present that really captures the power of the Bible is the word inerrancy. We may have a, a better word later, but infallibility has come to mean less than inerrancy. So that's why I don't use that term. I feel like it's it's a it's a way to sort of sidestep the implications of the full authority of the word. I'm talking on and on, Clay. Let, but interrupt me, please, when you need to here. <laughs> no problem. No, I, I appreciate all these antidotes, and it's uh, great to hear because you answered part of my question um, about yeah. just why is it possible for a Wesleyan to sign the Chicago Statement? Oh, that. Um, <laughs> yeah that was a great question oh my goodness because yeah. i think yeah. by our mutual friend which i didn't say this off air but i also know dr vic reasoner um, yes yes and we've interviewed before uh he's a great great leader um he is great um would love to have well i'm going to be having him on soon so good uh, good, good. Be, uh something we talk about but i by his now, account, now um, vic is a scholar uh, i'm not vic he's the kind of guy you need to talk to about these things but thanks for letting me give my two cents <laughs> no it's yeah. great uh you're an evangelist and uh deep in ministry so this affects all parts of the church and that's what i want to show is that it doesn't only that's... affect um the scholarship that's being put out by ets no, exactly right? it's yeah, it's affecting you. the church as well it really is it really is that's right yeah 
so I wanted to ask more directly. I know you mentioned this before with sanctification, but I wanted to ask, you wrote an yeah. article yeah. Um, that was published by the Armenian magazine put out by the <laughs> Fundamental Wesleyan Society. Wow, man, you've, you've done your homework. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's okay. I I just love to read. Your stuff's great. Um, I also read your foreword to Vic Reasoner's Systematic Theology. And oh, yeah. So I... <laughs> Yeah. A lot of your stuff is is great. So, I, but I wanted to bring this up because um, it was an important article um, about how inerrancy affects one's view of entire sanctification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I forget the impetus for it, but but I what I began to do, and this is the way I do everything. That's why I don't publish much because I just have this weird, exhaustive. I think it's obsessive compulsiveness in me, but. I just began from the first issue of the Wesleyan Theological Journal, which is the journal that comes out of the Wesleyan Theological Society. I think the first one was like 1960 or 61, something like that. And I just began to read it. And I found between 60 and 74, 75, this almost to a person, strong articles on the inerrancy of the word and its connection to all that we believe as Wesleyans. So that's that everything about the order of salvation from prevenient grace until heaven, including justification and the sanctified life, all of it is based upon the inerrancy of the word. And, and nobody would critique it. There were, there were articles like just building on each other. But then I noticed about the mid-70s, a shift. And I began to read those articles and thought, wait a minute, this is not the same perspective on the word. And sure enough, the language we just talked about, the ICBI folks were trying to say we're not neo-orthodox we're not people who believe the word is contained in the word we don't believe that you somehow view the intention of the authors as the scripture this is the revealed word of god in text in propositions and history and poetry that can be fully leaned upon with all of your life it is the truth it's the true truth and i thought why why we why have we lost that voice where is that voice and i would say in many journals, not just, I'm not going to pick on the WTJ, but any many journals in the Wesleyan tradition or other traditions, you'll find the same kind of thing. When a person or a group of people say, we're not going to be inerrantists, everything shifts. Their emphasis shifts totally. So that article came out of, and I didn't do it all because that would have taken me another 15 years. But I, as I read through, I thought, I see a change. And I, I can, I, in that article, I put the exact year in which a leader in the WTS said, we are no longer inerrantists. This is not who we are. That's a reformed category. We are informed or, or raised up more, we're more informed Wesleyan. And look, I have no desire to be a part of some kind of defunct, uh, Ricked, non-thinking group of people. I, I'm sure people think I am. I, I don't think I am. I just want to be one who advocates for the full authority of the revealed word of God. This is the word of God to me. In the autographs, yes. Are we there? No. Can we get there? I think the Lord is leading us back to that. In the history of the world, there's been nothing like the text we have. I mean, any Christian who opens up the Bible, you've got 99% totally supportable truth. And the other 1% is on the way to being proven. It's, it's an incredible thing what the Lord has done for us over the centuries to give us this, 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 this beautiful word. And I'm, not, I'm talking about something dropped out of heaven like the Quran. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a real 
understanding of who Paul is and who David is. They're real people with real issues, real, real experiences. And the Holy Spirit took them and raised them up, lifted them into this inspiration and illumination, whatever was needed to give to us in our any day after their writing, the truth. So this is not some weird lobotomy or whatever else. And I began to realize that the entire movement that no, I should not say entire, the movement represented by that group of people was moving away from entire sanctification. It was interesting. I looked over church history and thought, wait a second. Those who pull away from the authority of the word, like the neo-Orthodox folks, Karl Barth uh, was one, uh, Reinhold, Reinhold Niebuhr another, those folks, once, once you pull away, the first thing that gets questioned is the, the full divinity and humanity of Jesus. It, it becomes sort of a question mark. So we go to too much divinity, too much humanity, that upper lower story thing that Francis Schaeffer talked about. Then it moves from Jesus to salvation. So we move away from the highest views of what God can do in their lives, high view of scripture, high view of Jesus, high view of salvation. If you lose a high view of scripture, you lose who the Savior is, and you lose what he came to do. And I thought, these folks are not losing just by mistake-making. They're, 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 they're saying something about reality. They're arguing that God can't do in a person's life what the Bible says God can do. So for me, there's a direct connection. If I believe what the scripture says as the revealed word of God, then I have no out to what he says he desires of me, what he can offer to me, who he is, what he can offer to me, and what he, what he can make me. And that to me is a very important point for us as Wesleyans, because I find even today there are inerrantists from other theological perspectives whose interpretation of the inerrant word will not allow them to see what we see. So I believe it's very important in the, for the church to have a Wesleyan perspective to say, at least there are some of us who say, before heaven, he can sanctify a human heart. Now, we can debate when that happens, how it happens, the theological structure, fine, debate, let's debate. But we're not going to pull off, at least I'm not going to pull off, that that's what the Bible clearly makes clear to us from the beginning paragraphs until the last page of Scripture. I'm intrigued, Clay, that in the last paragraph of Scripture, the Lord says, let what is holy be holy still, and what is unholy, let it be unholy still, among other things, on the last page of the Bible. So before everything ends, time, holiness matters to God, and unholiness is clearly defined. So to, to me, I'm thinking, okay, well, that that's not something I can just throw up and say, well, I'll interpret that the way I'd like. I don't know if John really wrote the book of Revelation. I don't know if we're meant to take it historically or whatever. There just seems to be so many excuse-making processes. And I I guess I'm narrow enough to say, I, I don't want to go there. I'm old enough now. I'm an old man. <laughs> I'm old enough now to see that a low view of Scripture produces a low view of the Christian life. And a low view of the Christian life means we have nothing to offer to culture. And I think that's our problem. The church has lost its prophetic witness in our culture, its moral standing in our culture, mainly because we're playing around with our own text. We don't even know if we fully believe it or can trust it. And the Lord says, stop. I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, myself and my word. 
interpreted by my spirit through the church's history. So build upon that in American culture. Don't tear it down. Now, am I a pipe dreamer? Maybe. But that's that's the kind of, of perspective that I saw dwindle away in a major group of Wesleyan's PhDs. Now, maybe the inerrantists kept going. Maybe they're still going, but they're just not publishing papers. Uh, it's not acceptable. So either, and Clay, I want to say, I don't know all truth. I don't, I don't know all this stuff. Maybe I'm just not seeing what their criticisms are of inerrancy. Maybe. But I'll tell you, I've read books and gone to lectureships and I've gone to schools where I am made fun of. And I think to myself, well, wait a second. I look at your criticisms and I don't find the basis for them. You're not, you're not, you're not answering my questions. What is truth? What is true truth? Is it propositional? Is it historical? Is it only subjective? How do I know when I go to the Bible that what I'm reading is true? From your, from your analysis, you're saying I'm imposing something on us. Okay, I'll accept that. But what are you doing? You're imposing something on the scripture. You're telling me that you know where it's untrue. And that, that is a very problematic stance. And I say one more thing. I, I hope that what I'm saying comes out this way. I don't really want to be known as an inerrantist for just that reason. I don't even want to be known as anything. I, what I'm saying is I want God to have full access to every human being to show us exactly who he is before we see it face to face. I believe the word's the only place you can find that. You can't find him subjectively. So if that's the truth, then I don't think we have much time in life to play around with the Bible as sort of a malleable thing where I can say, well, I'll pick that and choose that, uh, or I'll, I'll eject that and I'll keep this. That has never gotten the church anywhere historically. That's verifiable. All the divisions in, on sexuality today in every major denomination, including the Methodist church, which just blew up a few months ago, now two major denominations, now more than that, has come to basically to the authority of the word, inerrancy or not. That's the fundamental reason. What, is, what does the Bible say about sexuality? Is it true or not? And those who say it's not have taken a different track on salvation and sexuality. Um, so this is a very serious issue, and I'm so glad you're giving your time to studying and, and letting people in on the discussion um, and the debate. We need to have debate. I need to be corrected. I, I just have found that it's interesting. We've stopped really interacting on this. We're sort of at sides now, so we don't talk to each other. Sort of, you, you, you know, you, you, you have your own group, just like in seminary, and you kind of hang together. You don't relate. You kind of look at each other arrogantly and with, with not wanting to communicate. I think it's because we're afraid our position is too weak um, or something like that. So I, I really think that you're on to something very important. And that's what that article was about for me. So uh, I, I have a box of all that research. I look at it all the time thinking, I wish I could finish that sometime. <laughs> I may I may be wrong. and I may have missed something in the history of our, 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 uh, our theological society, but I don't think so. I think I'm on the um, I'm on the right track there. Well, would thanks for letting me uh, be so verbose. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it was great. Um, I think it'd be wonderful if that work was published at some point. Um, <laughs> I, I certainly would read it. <laughs>
Um, oh, well, thanks, Clay. That's that means a lot to me. It, Vic was the one who encouraged me to publish it in five parts in his Armenian uh, Armenian journal. Uh, yeah. Um, so he's 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 a connecting between a connector between you and me on several points. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Vic is great, and he does yeah. wonderful work. Um, he actually wrote a book that was similar to your article, um, "The Importance of Inerrancy." Um, yes. Recommended yeah. by uh, Norman Geisler himself. Is uh, that right? Yes. I've forgotten that. He has a blurb on the, I believe, the That's back so cover. I, I have that book. I've not read it yet. He gave me a copy. I was at a meeting with him, and I I, I need to read it. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> yes, it's. I think it's 60 pages long, so it's not very long, but it, it does delve a little bit into the history of the Wesleyan Theological Society and uh, uh, how Wesleyan theology has kind of shifted away from inerrancy as a broader total. Um, yeah. Well, there's still remnants of that. Yeah, um, yeah. Now, I wanted to ask, uh, where could people find good resources uh, for biblical inerrancy from a Wesleyan perspective? Well, you just mentioned one that I wouldn't have mentioned, so thank you for that, Vic Reasoner on inerrancy. That's an excellent, excellent thing. Um, you know, as I thought about this, I thought it's very sad that we don't really have a, a magnum opus that I could point out to you. Um Al Coppage, it's interesting, he wrote an article in a book I edited by Ken Conser, and the book was a very interesting title. It was How Do Evangelicals Do Theology? And he invited, Conser invited Coppage to write an article on how Wesleyans do theology. And for, to this day, that 40-page article is the clearest, for me, from my perspective, um, statement on how the Wesleyans view the quadrilateral. There's been this thing over the last couple decades where some people claim the quadrilateral, which was not a word that Wesley used. It was somebody else, a scholar who was looking at his theology, said, well, he uses scripture and tradition and reason and experience. Popich is very clear on, on talking about the norming norm of the scripture. That it is it is far above experience and tradition and reason. And so, so he he clearly puts where Wesley would. The scripture above everything else, so that everything comes to us from the word of God. We can reflect on it, yes. We can watch it in church history, yes. We look at tradition. All those things are great, but they're not anywhere in the equal, any, not in the same room as scripture when it comes to authority. It's the norming norm. And that article, uh, to this day, is the best one I've found to give to people a basis to build upon, because Al does a great job of pointing you back to the sources. Uh, Wesley's own own his uh, his own statements, written sermons, those kinds of things. Uh, Al is a, a consummate scholar and does does very careful work. Uh, I mentioned Dennis Dennis Kinlaw. You're not going to find the word inerrancy often in his talk. Uh, I think he was sort of a uh, unlike me. I'm not very politic. He was very he was able to cross over all kinds of contexts. But every single word he ever preached, and I've listened to hundreds of his sermons, hundreds probably a thousand of his sermons. Uh, he never once equivocates on the full authority of the word. There's never one higher critical question where you think, man, he, he's pulled back on the, on, the, on the veracity of the truth of God, never once. So he's a great example of how to preach an inerrantist with an inerrantist mindset, which we need in churches. You don't have to talk about the issues all the time. Just preach as if it's the truth, which it is. <laughs> um. John Oswald has written a great book called The Bible Among the Myths. 
tremendous book on contrasting the revealed word of God with mythic thought, which I think is a major player in what we're talking about, even though I don't want to go that far with some people to say they've bought into a pagan worldview, where what I experience is really what truth is to me. That's mythic and pagan. So that book is an, another way of looking at inerrancy. And I want to say that John's two-volume uh, work on commentary on Isaiah, which is a formative book for many people on Isaiah, it's a tremendous piece of work, is because he believed in one Isaiah, John does, <laughs> who wrote the entire book, which is so against almost all biblical scholarship today that it, it's almost laughable. But that two-volume work for me was one of the, those most encouraging things to say the Bible itself proves to me these questions that are raised by critics are answerable one by one uh, and, and, and answerable in a logical and systematic and deeply scholastic way, which is what we need today. That's how people think, you know, you've won the battle if you've been scholarly enough. It's not the theological stuff. It's it's the scholastic detail stuff that matters to people, which is a sad state of affairs, but that's where we are really today. John has done the work, so I'd, I'd recommend that. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I wish there were more, but uh, that's all I can think of right now. Yeah. No, those are great resources, um, ones that I didn't even think of as, as well. Um, I would also mention uh, there are a few historical pieces. Um, yeah. One in inerrancy in the church is an old book, um, published by when during the ICBI years, um, yeah. by a fellow named John Hanna, uh, church historian out of Dallas Seminary. Uh, he yeah. has a couple articles in there. Uh, he didn't write them. There were two Wesleyan scholars then that I'm blanking on their names, but I'll put their Wonderful. names in the show notes. Um, one's okay. on British Methodism, um, and inerrancy, oh. and then one's on okay. American Wesleyanism and inerrancy. Uh, and then Tom McCall has one article in uh, D.A. Carson's uh, large volume, uh, The Enduring, Enduring Authority of the Christian Scriptures. He wow. go, goes through the uh, entirety of the Wesleyan tradition and shows how the authority of Scripture is, is shown through in there. Excellent. Um, Excellent. And then you, uh, listeners could also go to John Woodridge's book, uh, Biblical Authority. Uh, he yeah. only, in passing mentions uh, Wesley and uh, Richard Watson, another systematic theologian. Um, right. And right. Uh, I don't know if he mentions, uh, there's a couple others. Uh, Samuel Wakefield might be another one that he mentions, another systematic theologian from the Wesleyan tradition. Yeah, uh, an but, earlier time. An earlier yes. time, yeah, 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 right, right. But these That's are all resources piece. that I'll put in the show notes as well. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's great, Clay. That's uh, great work. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, I wanted to give you one last word. Um, yeah. Be your word to the church about the inerrancy of the, and the Bible. Yeah. Wow. Thanks. <laughs> well, for me, and again, back to my theme on holiness, which for me, there, there are two essence statements in the scripture, holy and love. So uh, there's nothing higher than those two words. God is holy, he is love. And so I, I always put those words together, holy love. The key, of course, is not for us to have a paper pope, as some people call, call us inerrantists, you know, some sort of physical document. That's not what I worship. I worship the Holy One. But I also believe the Holy One, in his love, has given to me words, given to us words, that we can trust. We can trust the history, the uh, the 
whatever the scripture is, is desiring to say to us, we can believe is true. Now, do you have to interpret that? Yes. Are there different interpretations? Yes. That's that's the joy of being a Christian, is we, we, we always depend upon the Holy Spirit to help us to find more of his truth. But his truth never changes. His truth is not affected by my interpretation or lack of it. There's got to be a context, objective context for my subjective life. And any place where you, a pastor, a teacher, a parent, separates those two and says, well, you don't need the objective truth. Just choose the subjective reality. You're not helping people. In fact, I think you're devastating them. Because if you lose an objective, historical, factual, correspondent view of, his, of, of reality, meaning words mean what they say they mean, then you, then you send a person off down a trail where they have, they've got to figure out what life is all about. And that's a, a dead end trail. I've tried that before. There's nothing there. It's just your feelings, your emotions. Now, the Lord cares about my life. He cares about my heart. But he re he's revealed, as 2 Timothy 3 says, he's, he's inspired these words so that I might live in a way that's holy, that I can be fully equipped to live a life he wants me to live. So I connect the word with life. The Holy One wants to give me truth and life. One thing we've not talked about, Clay, we don't have time today, but for me, all of my inerrantist theology comes out of the nature of the triune God. I mean, there was communication between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit before we ever existed. Creation is by the word. Jesus is the word. So this is far beyond our little quibbling about is that iota in the right place it's it's god's revealing himself to, to us because god speaks so if a church member wants to know what god wants you go to the word first you don't go to anybody else first you go to the word first because that's the foundation of everything that is true to us and we can trust that because jesus said my words are eternal meaning everything that he is and says. And he's triune, so that means everything he said, not just incarnate, but pre-incarnate, everything God has said. So he is the truth. He offers to me truth, and he wants us to live in truth. And so, like I said earlier, if your church is not a vital place of dynamic evangelism and social ministry, offering healing and hope to the world, I can pretty much guarantee you it's either because you don't have your his life in you or those who lead you aren't teaching you the fullness of the word. It's a direct connection. I'm very intrigued. And I hear I'm going to sound very, very judgmental. So forgive my, my sinful heart here. Uh, it's very intriguing to me that the liberal agenda has produced nothing in our culture. It does not offer life. I don't know what it offers. It's not offering Jesus. Nothing's happened since we began to ask these questions except negativity. We're not better, we're not holier, we're not more vital because of these incessant and I think oftentimes ridiculous debates. Scholars, great, get a PhD on, on a verse, wonderful, do it, but don't bring it back into the church and let people who want to find life leave after you've preached thinking, what, what, what's real? What, I think I'm, uh, did I go to a lecture or go to a sermon? based upon the word of God. Now, I'm sure there are striations of this that I'm not thinking about or we don't have time to talk about. All right, I love scholarship. I love training. I'm all for 
original language study, do it. Great. But I want to have a heart that comes at, at, by saying, I believe that God is true and his word is true. And I can lay all of my life on this true truth. And I can proclaim this without equivocation to anybody who comes into my life. I don't have to back up and say, well, this may not be historically accurate, but let's just look at the truth of what's being said here. That has that line of thought has gotten us nowhere in offering Christ. I don't think it ever will. I think there's something inherently wrong, if not evil, about looking at the word as not truly the truth of God. Uh, now, that's pretty strong. But I would I would end by saying a vital Christian experience vital, is based upon the full authority of the word of God. And uh, so I would challenge anybody listening to this podcast to look at their own hearts and ask themselves, am I really willing to obey everything the Bible is saying? Or do, have I isolated some scripture to say, I'll, I'll choose that. I don't like this. When you start doing that, it affects not just you, but everybody around you. And uh, I think the Lord does care about what his church is based upon. It's based upon him, but he's a God who speaks. And he can speak to us every single day, moment through his word. By his spirit and that's a great for me that's the, that's the place where i must stand and i hope i do all of my life and i'm open to be learning so play you critique me anybody else critique me i want to learn but I, I really feel like i've lived long enough now to see i don't want to play on the edges of holy things i want to dive into all god is and what he says because i want i want the world to know what is true uh not some half truth Thanks for letting me preach too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having the heart to preach and to, uh, you're always welcome to preach on this podcast. Um, <laughs> thank you for your heart and, uh, for the people of God. And, uh, I just want to end with, uh, a word of, uh, just encouragement for you. Um, this has been a great conversation and I've appreciated your thoughts and your heart. Um, so thank you, Dr. Yuri, for joining me on the Inerrant Word podcast. Go and read Thanks. the word. Thanks, Clay. Bless you, brother. <laughs> Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Bill Yuri, for coming on the show. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Until next time, go and read the word. Mm -hmm.